everybody, and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Blackie, talk to writers about writing, and very often those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, unless it's a rejoinder episode, which half of the time, it is. This is one of those times. We're talking to David Leo Rice today about his upcoming book, The New House. It's going to be out from Whiskey Tit Press sometime this summer. David Leo Rice is a writer and animator from Northampton, Massachusetts, currently living in New York City. He's the author of the novels A Room in Dodge City, A Room in Dodge City Volume 2, Angel House, and The New House. As well as the story collection Drifter, he's online at raviddice.com. David currently teaches creative writing at the New School. If you would like to support the show, you can do so in one of three ways that involves money. The first way is the preferred way. It's on patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. I got three tiers. They all got their own perks, and they're all appreciated. You could toss me a one-time donation at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or you could buy my book. It's called Tired, and it's on Amazon. You could also, and this one's free, give it a five-star rating wherever you find it on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, anywhere else that you find this podcast that allows you to give it a five-star rating, you can do so if you feel it deserves it, but it does. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with David. I think the thing that most quickly jumped out to me was it was interesting to see this type of story which is the story of a um, supremely sheltered child by uh, very fanatically religious parents who becomes uh, an artist, um, among other things. It was interesting to see it from the perspective of a, a Jewish family, because generally it's like an evangelical Christian family when I see a story like this. So uh, I'm curious to know how, the, how that framework came about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think partly just that I thought it would be something different, you know, that it's something that I haven't seen before. And also that it would be a way to dig into my own background, you know, my own Jewish background and kind of thoughts that I'd had about being an outsider of an outsider, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of like being Jewish, which is already, you know, a small group in the world, but then even being alienated from that. Right. And sort of the way that, you know, there, there, I think there's a few levels of alienation because this kid's parents who are sort of artists, right, or have some kind of trauma in the history of the art world mm-hmm. are they are fanatically religious. But the dogma that they're teaching him is a kind of heresy, even relative to Jewish dogma. Right. So he's sort of absorbing the sense that he should not allow himself to be a part of any group. It was the classic uh wouldn't want to be a member of a club that would have me as a member, which is itself a Jewish sentiment, right? I mean, that's mm. Groucho Marx, right? Very Jewish comedian. Um, and I think that is kind of this like deep paradox in at least like culturally Jewish sentiments that you sort of become most yourself by trying to reject your tribe or the way you become a member of the tribe is by not wanting to be a member of the tribe and like the nature mm. of that paradox I think paradox itself and kind of irony and, you know, seeing things both ways is, I don't know if it's uniquely Jewish, but it's like a particularly Jewish trait, I think, of, of sort of questioning things from this kind of outsider position. 
um, which might actually lead to a lot of hatred of Jews too from like whatever kind of larger society they're in that Jews are seen as like overcomplicating things or mm -hmm. sort of wearing away at certainties or you know sort of not allowing people to be on the same page about some kind of simple uh, sense of you know where we stand in the world right so, so like this kid is already alienated from that but then he also has to alienate himself from the family right mm -hmm. which in some way actually means going back into the mainstream right or sort of wanting you know he's torn maybe as i'm torn actually between wanting to be a kind of genuine outsider artist who's you know fully unknown and fully unincorporated and therefore fully un hampered let's say or like someone who who has no obligations other than to do exactly his own vision although even that is ambiguous because you could say in that sense he has a full obligation to whatever that vision is that he's like purely a servant of what he imagines to be some kind of divine spirit you know which they call the demiurge in this book and on the other hand actually wanting recognition right there's a part of him that does want to be in this kind of fancy gallery world and be known in the cities and you know all of the stuff so i think he's you know the way that this character is torn is an extreme version of the way that i'm torn so i thought mm. you know that would be a good starting point and then it could develop from there right um i'm only familiar of the concept of the demiurge from a gnostic um perspective is that um is that a thing within jewish thought generally it certainly shows up here and there. I mean, the thing that I was most referencing is Bruno Schultz, uh, Street of Crocodiles, right? Who, who's a very important, uh, he, he's in a, you know, whether he's an outsider artist is, is hard to say, but he's definitely someone who lived a very private life in a small town in what is now Ukraine, but was then Poland. I mean, he wrote in mm -hmm. Polish. He's basically a Polish author, but he's in that much discussed today, uh, border area of Ukraine and Poland. Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, was was brutal then and is brutal now. Uh, and he created, you know, I've always been interested in these kinds of people who create a universe in their own town mm -hmm. and who skip the intervening space of the city, you know, who sort of are trying to balance like nowhere, you know, being like a truly tiny town with everywhere, being in touch with the universe at the expense of somewhere, you know, of mm -hmm. going to, in his case, I guess, Krakow or Warsaw, you know, not wanting to do that, right? And he talks about the Demiurge a lot. So in The Street of Crocodiles, mm -hmm. which is, it's a story collection, but it sort of reads like this body of mythology in which his hometown, which is called Drohovich, uh, becomes this site for various sorts of like astral battles. And the people in his life, like his father and this kind of nanny or sort of maid figure who shows up a lot, take on these supernatural roles um, and the way that he talks about the demiurge is not necessarily evil i mean i think in gnosticism it, there's a pretty negative relation to the demiurge yeah but, right where, whereas in schultz it's more the sense of just restless creativity of just sort of working with matter endlessly without any goal of completing it so it's a kind of materialist right. spirituality in the sense that there isn't this sort of higher you know perfectible form but there is something spiritual about it in that there's an idea that something greater than us or something kind of imbued with a force from the beyond is endlessly making us and is working through through us if we keep making other things so it's the mm -hmm. sense of art as a as a form of worship right okay 
that's interesting because the, the context that I have from the Gnostic perspective, which is fraught term, of course, because there's different schools and they wouldn't even called themselves schools at that time. But basically this and I'm waiting, I'm waiting to hear like the more I dig into Gnosticism academically, the more I, I wait to see a criticism, this particular criticism of Gnosticism, of the idea of the Demiurge being particularly anti-Semitic, because the way I understand it through Gnosticism is like the God of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament is not God and is like the anti-God. Um, and you can tell because look at all the cities destroyed and floods and genocides and whatever. Um, and therefore the God of, of the New Testament of Jesus is something um, opposite. And then there's a whole cosmology, several cosmologies and around how the Demiurge is created, whether it's has to be there or if it's um or if like evil is a um like byproduct of, of divine creation kind of like the slag that comes off when you do blacksmithing work um so heretical yes in the book but also like through my mind it's like extra um because i i tend to see gnosticism as sort of um de facto anti-semitic um uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is how, at least at the beginning, before identities start really molding and before time starts really um, moving around in strange ways, is um, how you captured how confusing it is to be a little kid, um, especially when you move. Like, I, my family moved once and I was like two and a half, so I don't have that context, but I imagine being like, four, five, six, especially if you had to move a lot. Um, that just like waking up one day and being like, wait a minute, where is this? Who are these people? Um, kind of reminded me of, of like the earlier bits of portrait, portrait of an artist as a young man, how like it's so confusingly written because the narrator himself like just doesn't know what's going on. This is something funny that, you know, I'm home visiting my parents in Massachusetts now. Uh, and we were talking about this book and, you know, we're looking at baby photos and things yesterday. And my mother said, I actually did that. I, I have no memory of this at all. But she said, so when I was born, they lived in a little apartment in, in this town in Northampton. And we moved to the house we're in now when I was less than one, like maybe six months old. And she said, at that time, I slept, I slept through the entire move. So the movers mm. came and took everything out of the house, except me in the crib, I guess, and I was fast asleep. And I did wake up in the new house. So it's some like, I can't imagine I could possibly actually remember this from when I was six months old, but I guess that experience is in me somewhere. It's a very funny thing, which I had, when I was writing this book, I had no sense of that story at all. Hmm. Uh, there, there were a couple other books, particularly A.S. Coomer's Birth of a Monster that kept appearing during like the first half of of the new house, um, like with the animal corpse uh, into sculpture sort of thing, um, which that that book, too, has a very sort of religious theme to it. But again, from like a Christian perspective, so I feel like the two books mirror each other quite well um at least the first half of, of birth of a monster um goes off into being a serial killer story later um but um like there's so much in this book in your book that 
makes it really hard to just like point at one thing um like obviously there's a lot of imagery we talked about the demiurge but there's a snake living in the house that he brought in uh clearly you know it's hard to have any sort of biblical abrahamic story with a serpent in it that isn't immediately allegorical um or metaphorical and um i don't know just the way that that jacob makes art um and what he sees as art that from the perspective of viewing an outsider artist makes me question like what exactly art is like where the bounds are uh briefly before we were recording we talked about i forget his name already james hampton um who like his stuff is living in art museums now because those are the only people who know what to do with it um but if you had asked him he had a very religious divine mandated reason to make the thrones that he made um and so it's interesting to see the art world as a like means of um i don't know salary for for these types of people you know and a kind of shrine you know it's sort of i mean a lot of people would make this comparison but the sense that you know in a kind of broadly secular western society or at least a world where we consider religion to be one category rather than the overarching worldview certain kinds of artists are treated like saints or like people mm. who have you know or even like heroes right people who have gone on some journey to the you know to the edge of madness or even who have been killed let's say by suicide or by substances or something like that i think we do have this kind of fetishistic worship of them which is ambiguous right it's not entirely a bad thing because like you're saying you know if the shrine of the gallery or the museum doesn't exist that stuff just goes to the landfill which happens a lot anyway mm -hmm. right so there is something to be said for preserving it but i think it you know like anything probably comes at a cost right it always has to be not exactly denatured or, or uh, secularized but in a way it has to be rendered palatable to people who might be interested in it but are not prepared to take it literally mm. right so it has a little bit of this kind of zoo quality i think of you know we can look at henry darger's work and kind of you know in a charitable sense try to empathize with him in a less charitable sense experience it as a kind of zoo or a kind of freak show you know which i think that prurient aspect is there which you know is part of humanity too it's not that also is ambiguous but i i feel very torn about you know do those things belong in a museum or not and i think it's better better than the being in a landfill but i'm interested in what cost you know is exacted by trying to frame them in that way and then you get into the whole other even more dubious question of well how are they appraised and who owns them and why are they valuable now and who does that money go to and then you're deep deep right. down the rabbit hole <laughs> yeah i mean the art world certainly is is quite fraught um <laughs> as discussed in the book um i like even near the end he's he's talking to people who make their living off of finding outsider artists and they're like you know people want to touch the weird but they don't want to get any on them and like i definitely feel guilty of that myself like if you went into my youtube account and watched all these videos i watched about the henry dargers of the world you're you'd probably be able to say the same thing about me like you know you're you're real fascinated in 
and you know the crumb brothers joe but like what are you how you know how how close are you willing to get to a person like that i mean how many of the people who ask me for money on the street every day are going home to some garage and making something spectacular um that i'm just like not willing to engage with them and even if i was willing to engage with them on the off chance that that's the a possibility that in itself is exploitative um right and and even that is i think an interesting question of should we be proud or ashamed of ourselves insofar as we want to you know touch the weird but not have it touch us let's say right i mean i think there's that too is not necessarily a bad thing right if you're engaging with every single person you meet on some point you just can't anymore like you know you could do you know that could be your your life path but then there's still only a limited amount that you can take on right mm-hmm. or there's you know we only have so much it's not just about time but it's like we only have so much uh emotional absorption that we can that, that we can put forth and so i don't blame people for wanting to see art within a kind of framework on the other hand i do always feel queasy in some way of sort of like what are we actually trying to do here or and like also maybe what need are we making up for like why are our lives not weird weirder or not Mm -hmm. weird enough you know it's like what what is it that has put us in this position where we crave a certain kind of weirdness but also fear it why are we stuck in that limbo i think is, is sort of the question that many of us are living with at this point yeah right it's a catharsis but what is the catharsis for you know and what, from yeah right um another thing i found interesting about this book is is the subject matter i feel like is kind of opposite of of the the stuff in drifters particularly the brother Squimbomb stuff like you have these people who are going out into the world to exert their will on it to take from it and then you have people who are retreating from the world and putting out into it something else right um and both are transgressing both types of people are transgressing society in in different ways um and i feel like i feel like the the latter category like i feel like jacob is is the more truly transgressive figure um and I mean, I, I feel like with the nature of of who I follow on Twitter and the things they talk about, like I'm constantly sort of judging people's definitions of transgressive and outsider. Um, like, I feel like if Jacob had a Twitter account, he wouldn't be an outsider anymore, right? Like, he would be a spectacle for the world, which would make him not an outsider. Maybe he's not in on the joke or in on in you know in the club. But he's certainly like, I feel like you can't be an outsider and have people know about you, right? And I think there are different types of dignity, Mm. right? Because if you want to be a true outsider like Jacob, maybe you sacrifice the dignity of being known, right? Or of being getting any kind of praise, but you retain the dignity of being able to insist that your work is serious and that it is what you think it is. Mm-hmm. Whereas the opposite, so I think a good example of the opposite would be like Tommy Wiseau from The Room, mm. right? Because he's someone who made a movie that he thought was serious, but then everyone else laughed at it. And then he had the pivot where he's like, okay, I guess it is a comedy, mm-hmm. right? Which on the one hand is, is maybe a sign of a kind of sanity. Like he read The Room and was like, well, I want to be an entertainer. Like, this is what's working. Like, let's go with that. 
So he has the dignity of being sort of famous in some ways, but maybe lost the dignity of no longer being able to say that this work should be taken seriously, even though that's what you know he believed about it at the outset, right? So, so right. I think it something I was thinking about a lot when I was working on this book uh, is this continuum that you can draw that basically goes from the weird, weird on one side to the cool, weird in the middle to the cool, cool on the other side. Mm. And basically the two words are one is someone's actual essence, if we believe in such a thing, and the other is how they present it to the world, right? So the cool weird, who are probably most of the people who we like, right, or who are kind of generally popular, like Lynch and Cronenberg and, you know, uh, Dennis Cooper and people like that, there is something innately weird about what they're doing, but there's also also something cool where they're kind of cognizant of it and how to present it to the world and you know they want to be at con and they want to be you know taken seriously by this kind of art world on the far other side you have the cool cool which is maybe like andy warhol or jim jarmusch or lou reed or someone who's just innately cool and they know it and they're mm -hmm. presenting themselves as cool right which, which is good that's, that's not a negative thing but that's just you know that's one way of being but then the people who we're talking about are far on the other side which is the weird weird which is people who are innately weird and whose take on it is weird or who are not trying to package it right so it's like the difference between the two crumb brothers mm -hmm. right that robert crumb is cool weird right that he his work is weird but he knew how to be part of this kind of comic scene and how to be sort of you know playing his role within this kind of fancy world like john waters or someone like that who you wouldn't be afraid to meet right mm -hmm. it would be an unambiguously good thing to like run into john waters i think or or um robert crumb Whereas Charles Crumb, his brother, I would say is weird, weird, is someone who kind of didn't want to or wasn't able to put what he was doing into a package that anyone else could receive. And maybe as someone who you either wouldn't want to meet, or if you did meet them, it would be a heavy experience. There'd be some something would happen. And it may be a valuable experience, but it wouldn't be an unambiguously desirable experience. Yeah. Um... And you can see, especially in the Crumb Brothers, you can see the the digression of their works. Um, like if you buy the first collection of R. Crumb comics, some of which have artwork done by his brother because they collaborated as kids on comics, and you can't really tell the difference. And then you get to more modern Robert Crumb, and he's he's got his style, Fritz the Cat, and all that good stuff. Um, and the later Charles Crumb stuff that's in that documentary, which is just called Crumb, there's like these squiggly lines through all the figures. And because what's happening, right, is Robert Crumb is out in the world. He's reading other comics. He's putting on magazines. So he's judging other people's work and then adapting based on that consciously or unconsciously. And presumably Charles Crumb is just sitting in his room drawing. And so it's like those experiments they used to do on children where they would just like put them in a room and be like, let's see what the primordial language is. And it turns out to just be like animal grunting. <laughs> Who to think? Yeah. And I think that's it, that it's like the cool weird. So if we take Robert Crumb as the example, it's like at some point your work manifests that you're in a conversation with other work right. and with other people. Whereas the weird, weird, either you're in conversation with no one right you're just grunting alone in a room or maybe in jacob's case you're in conversation with some something else mm -hmm. which, I, which i give credence to i mean I, I don't 
think that that thing doesn't exist, but it manifests very differently than being in conversation with actual other work. And I think part of it also is if you think of the position of a viewer or a reader, it's like, can that third person, that kind of stranger, perceive the things that you're in conversation with? Right. Mm -hmm. So can you look at our crumb and be like, oh, yeah, it's sort of like these other comics. And there's these French things that he's looking at and these movies that he's looking at and jazz and all this kind of stuff. You know, and it's like, OK, I kind of get where that's coming from, even though it's weird. Whereas if I look at Charles Crumb, I'm like, I don't know. There's no reference I can pick out in here. Yeah. Yeah. Um... <laughs> and I think that's what makes some of the characters in the new house feel maybe predatory almost predatory like like Greta or or like the the art couple where they're just like oh yeah I get it <laughs> I get it it's all these figures around a table and it's symbolizing you know the the destruction of the American family and small town whatever like oh yeah 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 I totally get it um and I certainly think that that does the art a disservice but I also feel like it does us the viewer a disservice right like we we as viewers of Charles Crumb Charles Crumb's work like shouldn't necessarily think that he has some sort of insight on society that we don't have because he's not part of it um or you know apart from it in a in a way that we don't understand like it seems like it would do greater service to us as viewers to just be like I can't understand this and and either try to you know dig in to the life of charles crumb which which may be difficult and maybe unethical or to just i don't understand this i can't understand this full stop but aesthetically it's pleasing to me it awakens something within me that makes me want to go on and and now start a conversation with his work out in the world that i have and i, and I think that might be where it dovetails with these religious impulses that it's you know a certain kind of work that is pre-interpreted you could say you know i'm trying to enrich my life right i already have a sense of what my life is and i want to go to the museum and just strengthen that and become like more myself or, or entrench myself in my position more whereas this truly outside kind of art is actually more about i want to threaten my life or i want to blow up mm -hmm. my life a little bit and and get the sense that maybe i have no idea what I'm doing, or at least whatever I am doing is only a tiny part of the map. And the same is true in religion, I think that, you know, whether it's this kind of Zionist impulse in, in Judaism of like, you know, we understand what Judaism is about, and it's about defending Israel, or this, uh, you know, saved aspect of Christianity that, you know, Jesus came, and he's on my side, and it's all good now. You know, that's kind of like, you're entrenching yourself more. Whereas I think in either religion, and in, in any religion, there's this more mystical side that's like, you know, the more you think about these things, the deeper the mystery will become. And if you want to take that trip, that's the only true thing you can do. You can never expect there to be, you know, maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but you can never expect yourself to reach it, right? Mm -hmm. You sort of have to deepen the darkness and say, you know, this goes back to this Demiurge idea. I think that all I can do is remain in the process of doing something and that scary as it is is a kind of authentic way to live whereas what the book calls nazism is always the insistence on absolute and finished forms which always i think historically and spiritually 
leads to some form of violence because you're mm-hmm. always then defending it against whoever you view as threatening that finished form, which seems just untenable if you don't want to go down that road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I touched on it before. Like, you know, I, I think, I think at some point in the book, Jacob thinks about what he's doing as art. Um, but maybe only in so far as, um, it serves the creation of the new Jerusalem that he's trying to do, right? Like, it kind of just seems like he's speaking the language of the people he needs to speak the language of, uh, to get his work out, uh, to the, and however it needs to be out, which even having read the book, I'm a little foggy on, um, and you know, like some of these people, like Henry Darger, like, I don't know if like that, that one, like, I don't know if he was creating art or if he was just exploring his religion. Right. Like, and certainly childhood trauma, it seems like based on how he grew up. Um, and then being in world war one as well. Um, so like, I mean, part of that seems therapeutical, but like, it also seems really, I, I tend not to like um, psychoanalysis as a form of literary criticism. Uh, I, I find that to be about as dangerous as psychoanalysis from a Freudian perspective as a form of psychology. But, um, you know, like, I don't know. Would, would he have called it art? Darger, you mean, or Jacob? Darger. Or I suppose both. I mean, one thing that's really interesting about Darger that I read somewhere is that he often used his realms of the unreal, not just as a way of exploring his religion, but as a means of communication with God that he would often write in his journal, various threats, Mm -hmm. right? So he was obsessed with like adopting a child at one point. And Mm -hmm. I think he wrote in his journal, like, you know, and he'd been rejected probably for understandable reasons. Uh, And he wrote in his journal, like, you know, dear God, if you don't let me adopt a child, right? Or if my application doesn't go through this next time, I'm going to kill like 10 children in the realm. Mm-hmm. You know, and then like this new war is going to come. And that's, I think, very fascinating because he sort of presented himself both as the supplicant, you know, praying for whatever kind of deliverance he wanted, but then also as God, right? He's sort of like, if you, God, whoever he imagined it to be, don't do what I want, I'm going to be you. Maybe that's a demiurge thing too, right? He's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to take the power of God in the realms of the unreal and cause this plague to rain down. And that that I find very fascinating is sort of like, what what are the forces that allow people to become gods? And that's sort of, you know, from the Christian point of view or, or from the Gnostic point of view, you could say, you know, the Jews were, were worshiping a false god and mm-hmm. now the real god emerged in the form of Jesus and redeemed us. Whereas from the Jewish point of view, you could say the Christians, you know, fell for this <laughs> figure that isn't God, right? This may be a prophet or something, but is basically just a Jew claiming to be God, right? Yeah. You know, but, but from each side, it's sort of the same idea of, you know, what is the presence of God on earth and how do humans activate it, if at all? I guess the more like Calvinist or, or Lutheran idea is like, you can't, it's just there and it's not there, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, we're totally powerless except to try to understand it, but we can't activate it. Yeah. And then, so what about Jacob? Jacob, I think you know, is confused, right? I mean, it sort of goes back to this portrait of an artist idea, which I think is, 
I'm sure that is a reference point somewhere, somewhere in the back of my head of this sense of, you know, being a child who knows they're precocious, I mean, who is precocious and is aware of it, you know, and is told by various adults in their world that they have something special or that they're kind of not like other kids, but also not sure where that will get them in the world and what to believe, right? So it's, you know, I remember I had a professor once who was teaching uh, portrait of an artist and he said like every chapter is patterned on some refusal mm. right so the character which i guess you know is choice in some level some way right basically says no to some adult every time right so there's like mm. a priest who's trying to get him to confess he says no to that there's some kind of political petition that's trying to get him to sign he says no to that until finally he says no to ireland and he's just like i'm i'm out of here right mm -hmm. uh, little did he know he would spend the rest of his life writing about Ireland from outside, right? But, or, or maybe he did know. Uh, but, but Jacob, I guess, is like that, that he sort of is determined to figure out what sort of influence his parents are on him, right? He doesn't like straightforwardly hate them. Like he sort of admires them and thinks maybe they're right about some things, but also has this growing consciousness that they're gonna like crush him if he doesn't escape, yeah. right? And that sort of whatever chance he has to live in the world is based on cutting the tie with them sooner than he's even ready to let alone sooner than they're ready to